nowhere in Scripture that is more densely defined or more densely pictures specific doctrinal truths and spiritual truths. So this thing is power-packed. So it's week after week as we go through the parts and the pieces. Now, we've looked at the instructions on it, but now we're in the construction of it, right? So as we're going through these parts and pieces, we're going to see it, the fact that these have a historical reference. Every part has a historical importance. Everyone has a practical importance. Everyone has a doctrinal importance and also a spiritual importance. So this thing is awesome. It's like unpacking a Bible all by itself. So it's really, really, really phenomenal. So as we look at this, we're going to understand there are deeper spiritual truths that are going to be taught through all of this. The whole goal is, the whole goal is we have to have our minds be willing to hear it, right? Because if you just come in here and going, oh, gosh, details, ugh, right? We can all just kind of veg. Who's ever sat in school and just been like, you have no idea what's even be said, right? You're just watching the clock. Is lunch coming? Is lunch coming? When's gym? When's gym? That, I mean, I don't know if that's where I went to school. Maybe the rest of the now not that the case. But I was excited. Lunch was my best subject by far. And, uh, <laughs> but what happens is we sometimes can sort of veg out. And what I want you to do is try to pay attention to the details because there's some really cool stuff in the details. So what's happened now, what happens is Moses and all the people have gathered at the, ba- the base of Mount Sinai. Okay, They're all gathered together. And as they've gathered together, we have all these craftsmen. And there was a guy named Bezalel that God chose. And Bezalel was given all these specific talents and abilities. He could work with any kind of material. And what happens, he assembles a group of craftsmen that work with him. And as he works with them and he organizes them, they're out there following these instructions that they were given. And the instructions came from Moses. And Moses got the instructions from God. So now as we're working through this, we're seeing that they're completing different portions and parts. So we had, first of all, the coverings, right? So those massive coverings that they built, they've all been folded up and set aside, okay? That's done. Now they've gone to the structure, and they built all those bars and all those boards and all that stuff. They've got all that stuff done, and they've got it all stacked up and assembled. And now they're moving to this last little portion here. There's just a couple little things to be done for that tabernacle proper to be completed. And what's interesting is the fact, why does God leave it to the end? I wish I could tell you why. I don't necessarily understand why. But what's interesting is that as you study the Bible, and I encourage you to do this, as you read the Bible, what's so cool about it is God designs an outline in the Scripture. He lays it out the way that it's intended for us to see it. So these last, this is, we're only going to cover four, chap, four, four verses today in this entire message. We only have those four verses. Now, there's a lot of supporting verses, but these four verses are set aside to the very end for a very, very specific purpose. And my prayer for us today is that God will help us to see what he's shown me, and I'll be able to display it to you guys. And that's the hard part of preaching, because it's all in my head. I, I'm like, man, I understand it. Problem is, if I explain it to you and you don't get it, you'll just be like, okay, that's a lot of talking. I don't know any idea what he was talking about. Okay, so let's pray that I can get out of the way today, that God will give you what we need to hear. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today, for this gift uh, of the scriptures. Lord, thank you for the way that you have worked in my heart throughout the week as I've studied through this. And Lord, I do praise you. Thank you. And thank you so much for your willingness to speak to me. Lord, I know that you have spoken to me. And I ask God that you now speak through me, that uh, the human element of this message would be removed. And Lord, that you will help me, God, to display uh, what it is. And Lord, what it is you've pictured us, which are doorways to God. And Lord, I just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, this message is doorways to God. Doorways to God. So as we jump into this, we're in Exodus chapter number 36. Verse number, we're going to go through verse 35 through 38. We're going to go 35 and 36 first. It says, And he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen with cherubims made he of made it of cunning, of cunning work. And he made thereunto four pillars of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold, and he cast them cast for them four sockets 
of silver. So we see the same design that was used for, the, for all the fine linen that was inside. Now, the same exact method was used for creating these. Exodus 36, 8, when they were making the, the coverings that are folded up and set aside, this was what the linens were designed to be. And every wise-hearted man among them that have wrought the work of the tabernacle made ten curtains of fine twine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet, with cherubims of cunning work made he them. So this is the same design that's being mimicked here in this veil. So what we find here is the fact that God's, uh, now, the, the whole thing, the tabernacle, as you were, if you were standing inside of it right now, understand what you would see, and I've got a picture, I'm going to pop up and show you. What you would see as you're standing inside of this, you'd have gold walls. So the walls inside would be gold where these bars are lined up. Then we have these columns here. We're talking about this portion right here. We're talking about this veil. So if you were standing in there above you, you would see the the, the, the linen, which would show you kind of a picture of heaven and the imagery. Then you're looking at the golden walls on either side of it, and you're standing before these columns of gold. They're in silver sockets, and there's an embroidered linen veil hanging from that. So remember that the tabernacle is a picture, a representation of heaven on earth. That's a whole thing. God divided into three different sections. There's a picture. We'll go back to that image that I showed you before. So you have the outer court, okay? So there's the outer court, then there's the tabernacle proper. That's going to be broken up into two portions inside of that. So the tabernacle or the outside, the outer court, that's where the common man was allowed access, okay? So this area out here would be sacrifices, cleansing, things of that nature. Then when we get inside of that tabernacle, when you went inside that door, what would happen is you'd be in what's called the holy place, okay? Now in the holy place, that was where sanctified priests were allowed to come. Now throughout the year, they were in there serving. They were changing the showbread. They were taking care of the incense. They're lighting the candles. So they're doing their job, their daily work. Then you had inside of that, then there's the Holy of Holies, and that's the veil we're talking about right now. And that Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had a top on it, was called the Mercy Seat, and that's where God's presence would be found. So no one's allowed in there at all for the entire year. There's one day a year where the high priest is allowed to enter into that place. So this first doorway that we're going to look at is the veil, and there's a picture of it we showed before. That's this right here. I know that's a screwy little model, but the pictures are not very good. I, was, I have an art background. I'm gonna, I want to hire somebody to do some really awesome pictures of the tabernacle the way I envision in my head because that is not as cool as it is in my brain. Anyway, <laughs> so every detail in this thing is specially and specifically designed to reveal to us not only humanity but God himself, okay? So as we're looking at this and we're going down a little bit further, understand the fact that God has a purpose and a plan for each part, each portion, and it's all about the ultimate the ultimate thing that God's trying to teach us is the fact that it's all about the, the purpose of the tabernacle is restoring intimacy with humanity. That was broken, right? In the Garden of Eden, the relationship ended right there. And what's happening now is this is a temporal way, a physical way to restore that, that uh, fellowship. So there are a few things. Now understand there are in the whole Bible or in the entire tabernacle, there are a few things that have as much visual impact or as powerful spiritual impact as this veil. This veil is really, really, really cool. We're going to look at it a little bit deeper. In Scripture, what we find out is actually the Bible reveals the veil as a picture of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.20 says this, By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us, this is Jesus it's talking about, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So he's saying, look, the veil that you see in the tabernacle is actually picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we continue our study, you're going to see additional proof of that. I'm not just going to throw that one verse out there. We've got a lot more that'll, that'll back that up. So we've got golden pillars here that are standing. Now in Exodus 36, these are structural members. These are the veil that are going to hold up the veil 
of the temple. So as we notice these pillars now, they're made of shittim wood, just like the boards were, okay? They're just like the boards. They're encased in gold, just like the boards. But they're sitting on a single socket of silver. Now, what's different is last week when we studied the boards. The boards had two tenons, okay? And they stood in two separate sockets. They pictured humanity as if you were standing, right? They're, they're individual. They're standing in two sockets of silver. What we also found out is that silver in the Bible has a representation. It represents redemption. So that metal represents redemption. We talked about the fact that the reason why this picture of humanity is standing, is able to have contact with the world and not be unholy, is the fact that it's been redeemed, right? Redemption through Christ is the very thing that allows the earth to come in contact with these pillars of gold, which are pictures of the believer. So we looked at that, but now what we look at is we have these columns, and these are no longer boards, they're columns, and they don't have two sockets, they have just a single socket. So they're picturing something, but they're picturing something different. So let's look at what that is. So as we look at this, understand, there was, now we saw Jesus, right? Now this cool thing is with this, these pillars is they're very similar, like I said, their whole purpose is to hold up the veil. They don't hold up the, the coverings. That's what the boards do. So these, these big, beefy gold columns are holding up just a little thin veil of fabric. Why is that the case? Now, Jesus proclaimed himself this as the truth. Okay, I want you to pay, pay attention to this. John 14, 6, Jesus saith, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So he says he's a truth. And he also says, no man cometh unto the Father. So almost like he's saying, look, no one's going to come by way of me. No one's going to pass through the veil. He says, unless, unless they're going to come by way of me, by the truth. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, when we go to John 1, 1, what we find out is the word is God, right? So it's saying here that the truth is God. The truth is Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, this is who I am. Now, if we consider that truth, so here we have columns. Their job, their only job, is to hold up the veil. The veil is the truth. The veil is a picture of Jesus Christ. Now look at this verse right here in 1 Timothy 3.15. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. So Paul's saying, hey, that you may know how to, how to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. He specifies, this is, we're talking about the church. And it says, comma, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So the pillar and the ground of the truth. What's the job of the church? Look at this. Those pillars do one thing, one thing only. They hold up the truth, right? So guess what? You and I as believers, guess what we're supposed to do? Hold up the truth. That's why we're here, man. There's all these beautiful pictures. So the veil here is obviously Christ. Here we are standing in the redemption, right? We're standing those sockets are silver. Based upon the redemption, they stand strong. What's also cool about this is the fact that these guys, they don't stand connected. What holds them together? Now, the boards, guess what? Now, they're all connected. They're supposed to represent the church. They're connected together. These are columns that stand individually. So collectively and individually, they carry the weight of the truth. You and I are supposed to individually take responsibility for the truth of God's word being shared. And that's something that's a responsibility that all of us bear, no matter how old we are. Because remember, if you don't have the ability to share it with word, you share it with your life. The conversation of your life speaks of who you are. 
by honoring people, by being caring, by being loving, by being understanding, by being someone who makes a difference in the world. Guess what? You are professing the truth in your life. And as God teaches you more and you understand more of the word, you can then share the truth. But guess what's wonderful is the fact that, guess what? As, as, a, as a believer who doesn't know, what you can do is bring them to a place where they'll hear the truth, right? So God's put all of these things in place to help us as a representation. We're supposed to hold up the truth. So how are we doing on, our daily, on a daily basis with doing that very thing? How are we living the truth? How are we displaying God's love to this world? Do we look at our world right now? Do we see that people need love? Yes. Oh, my goodness gracious. Hatred is the word of the day. Division is the word of the day. Frustration, anger, judgment. These are the words of the day. This is where we live right now. So that, that's not the solution. More division doesn't make things better. God wants us to be unified. But the devil functions in one way. He wants to divide, right? He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He wants to cause division between people. He wants to point out the differences between us. He wants us to magnify those differences. And God says, no, 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 no. I want to magnify those things that unite you. Well, guess what? As believers, if you're a born-again child of God, we're united by the fact that we have the Spirit of God that lives within us, but also we have the same job, the same responsibility, the same accountability to God. And there are hopeless people outside of the doors of this church. We're supposed to be displaying hope. So when we think about this, we're supposed to be displaying these things. Are we doing that? Are we taking personal responsibility to say, you know what? People are going to see love from me. Are we displaying God's forgiveness? to those that have wronged us. We all have people we can probably think of. If I could say right now, you would imagine in your head, you said, you said who somebody's really wronged you? And man, I mean, it cuts you deep. And you can think of them right now. My question is this, have you forgiven them? Do they know you've forgiven them? Have you made things right? Because understand, when you don't forgive, it's poison. It's poison. And it doesn't poison the other person poisons you. So as we look at this thing and we go through this whole aspect of teaching this, these, uh, I think I must have skipped a page here. Hold on a second. I did skip a page. That wouldn't have made any sense all of a sudden. I'd have been like, what is going on? <laughs> but what's cool about this is that in fact, you and I, we're supposed to up, hold up the truth. We're supposed to wave the banner of Christ to the world. In Psalm 60, verse 4 says this, Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee. Those that fear God, those that are your children. It says, Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed, that my life might display the banner. And it says, Because of the truth. The truth. High and lifted up. As in Isaiah 6, 1, right? Whenever Isaiah said he saw God, he said, I saw him high and lifted up. And the train did fill the room and he had the presence of God was overwhelming. He says, I'm, he says, whoa, I'm, he says, I'm undone. He says, look, I can't even stand up. I just turn into a jelly and fall on the ground because God's so incredible. He's like, I'm overwhelmed by this. And the thing is, we're not, you and I are supposed to be lifting the Lord up. People should be impacted by what they see. He's given us a banner. The problem is we have it packed up in our backpack. Go on an adventure of life on our own. And we know that the truth is Jesus. These pictures, these pillars picture Jesus Christ being held up by the individual believer. So, here we are. The pillars, 
which form the dividing structure. Now, this is going to be the eastern entrance into the Holy of Holies. Remember, we said that the western, this thing's always set up. The walls are north, south. The back is always to the west, and the entrance is always from the east. So this is the eastern way into the Holy of Holies. Now, this separates the larger area, right? So there's a larger area. That's the holy place. When you first walk in, that's it's broken up. It's kind of a, a third and uh, two-thirds and a third. So we look there. That's going to be the holy place here, which is the entrance in. And then we've got the, whole, the most holy or the holy, holy, holy holies back in the back where the mercy seat would lie. And as I told you before, there'd be only one day a year, right? Then the, the high priest. Now, he's going to go through a sanctification process where he is going to work on the fact that he's going to make sure that he's absolutely right with God before he steps through this veil. Because you do not want to step through the veil and not be right with God. Because they're going to hear a thud. You're going to drop dead. And in fact, what they did was they learned over time they needed to tie a rope to the high priest's leg. Now that tells me that at some point in time some guy was like, I'm good. And he just dropped out and they're like, how do we get him out of there? So they figured out, (laughs) tie a rope on him, we'll just drag him out and the next guy who's ready, right? How would you like to be the backup on that? <laughs> you good to go, Bob? I'm good. You ready, sanctified? Yeah, I'm ready. Boom. Ah, you're up, John. What? Uh, I might need to pray a little bit more before I go walking in there. Uh, one sec, I got something to talk to God about, right? So we think about that. We're like, whoa, that's a huge responsibility. So once a year, and what he would do is he would take a blood sacrifice into the altar. And what's interesting is God explains to us the significance of a blood sacrifice. In Leviticus 17, 11, he says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar of making, to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. The veil's purpose. Its purpose was to separate unholy man from holy God. Okay? So when he passed through that veil, that was a one-time deal. So this is a physical representation of what exists in heaven. And we know if we go to Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 11, you'll see there there's an explanation that tells you that the very thing, the tabernacle, is a picture of what exists already. It's just a model. It's a facsimile of what's real. So this veil is a picture of the separation between humanity and God because of the sin of mankind. So here we see this veil of separation. And then once a year, as I said, it's breached. By one sanctified man. And he brought a blood atonement to God. And what's so cool about this? For one brief moment, once a year, this high priest, representing all of humanity, gets to breach that veil. And he would walk in. And he would be accepted by God. And he brought a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was for his sin and the sins of the people to cover for a year. And I don't know what happened in that room. But my imagination goes wild when I think about what it would be like. I mean, all year long, you're like, oh, it's coming, 363 days, it's coming. I've been sanctified now for six months, man, I'm trying to be ready. You got that, man, you got your blood sacrifice, and you go walk it in. And can you imagine what, what Isaiah saw? He said that the train filled the room like a cloud filled the room, man. And the presence of God rested upon it. And, 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 and Isaiah just literally just turns to jelly because he's overwhelmed by the presence. Imagine this high priest walking into this tiny little room. It's like a, a 12 by 12 little tiny square. You're in there and it's just you and God. Holy guacamole. I bet the hair on his neck's like, ah! you know, I mean, you're just like, oh. He probably came out white as a sheet like, whoa, man, that was crazy, dude. I wish you could see it, but you can't, right? 
And what happens? So that's, this is what's the high priest, man. It's just, it's phenomenal. I, I, I mean, I, my imagination goes crazy. I just like, man, I can't imagine. But that went on for centuries until, until Jesus Christ changed the game. And we jump forward a couple of several thousand years. And from a doctrinal standpoint, understand that Jesus Christ, as the high priest, will go through the veil, take the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, which is his own blood to God. Listen to this. Hebrews 9, verses 11, 12, and then 24. Hebrews 9, 11 says, But Christ, being come and high priest of God, thinks to, thinks to come, things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. He says, look, we're talking about the heavenly one here. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Notice he says once. It wasn't a recurring thing. It didn't happen year after year. He did it once and one time only, and it's for the redemption of us, for the eternal redemption of us. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but in heaven to, but into heaven itself. Now do we appear in the presence of God. For who? For us. Look at that, man. For us. What drove him? Love. Love. <laughs> Wasn't the blood of an animal for a short-term sacrifice. This is his own perfect, sinless blood. An innocent man who came to earth to live a perfect life, to show us what it would look like, to have a conversation that was righteous in your life. And here he dies for the sins of the world because he was the only one who could. 1 John 2, 2 says this, and he is the propitiation. Propitiation means atonement or payment. He says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The whole world, man. This is a monumental thing. And what we find is the fact that this, this veil that we're talking about. Now, what we're going to see in this image here this actually is going to be uh, pretty awesome. Matthew 27, verses 50 through 51, talking of this veil, okay? Now, this veil that we're talking about here is not the one that's in the tent tabernacle. This is the one that's in Jerusalem that's actually going to be into the, the actual permanent tabernacle. And this is a much, much different thing. So here we are in Matthew 27, verses 50 through 51. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. He died. And behold... The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. What we see happening here is a physical representation of what took place in heaven. The barrier between God and man. Destroyed because of perfect sinless blood. Now understand, this temple, I got a picture of it, I think I'm going to show you. Obviously, this is an artist's representation of it. But see, this, this thing was about 30 feet wide and estimated to be about 30 to 40 feet high. This is a massive, massive, massive piece of fabric. It's supposed to completely cut off that room. No one would have access except for the high priest. So what happens? We're discussing that. Now, there's another picture of it. Somebody painted of it ripping. Check this out. Yeah. So that thing, now what's cool is you notice here, now... Obviously, this thing is super, super strong. It's very, very thick. It's woven. It's got all this intricate detail and stuff like that in it. But what's interesting is not what it's made of, not how thick it is, but what's relevant is the fact that it's torn from the top to the bottom. Not by a man walking up and going, rip like this. Not that any human being could, but to show that it was an act of God, he starts from the top, way up in the air, and shreds it right to the ground, right? Tears it clean in half. It says, from the top 
to the bottom. Then, just for good measure, he uh, shakes the earth and explodes some rocks and does some other stuff, just to sort of say, hey, guess what? This was me. <laughs> this was a God thing. It was no human being, just so you know. All right? So then we hear, <clears throat> we look at this. It was through the atoning sacrifice of our Savior that you and I have gained an unprecedented access to God like no other people before us. In Hebrews 10, 19, it says this, having therefore, brethren, listen to this word, boldness, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Amen. You and I have access, but it says boldness, meaning that I can, of my own volition, of my own schedule, I can come to God. Not based upon one time a year, not based upon specific uh, ramifications, but based upon one, am I a child of God? And if I am, God gives me access, boldness to go, you know what, God, I need you. I'm on the side of the road, I'm driving, I'm having a hard time. I pull off the side of the road, I'm sitting in a ditch, and I go, Lord, I need you. And he says, guess what? I got you. I'm here. The boldness, man, to know that that access has been given, man. Unbelievable. The torn veil also represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken and torn for our sake. We think about a broken body. We think about what it is he experienced, what it is he went through. Understand, he knew it was all coming. He's in the garden. God, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, but not my will, thine be done. If the suffering and the torture is to come, and he already knows because he sees it all. He knows every lash he's going to take. He knows every drop of blood that will fall from his body. He knows every strike that he's going to feel, every thorn pushed into his flesh, every pain receptor that explodes in his body as he's going through it. But he accepts it. Understand, this is a picture of that sacrifice. And we'll see the impact of Hebrews 10.20, which I quoted earlier. But now if we think about it with what he went through, listen to this. Hebrews 10.20. By a new and living way, which he, Jesus, had consecrated. Guys, he made it holy for us. Through the veil, that is to say, his flesh destroyed and broken, pictured in the veil. And we get further understanding of what Jesus did for us as we jump into Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 13 through 16. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He said, At one point in time, you were on the other side of the veil. At one point in time, you stood outside because there was no relationship with God, because of the sin in your life, because of the things you've done, because of the choices you've made. You're born into sin, but then you choose to live in sin. We do it all the time. And he says, So here you are, divided. Verse 14, For he is our peace who hath made both one, and hath, made, hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He says, the very thing that separated you, he has broken it down. He's busted it wide open, man. It's completely open for us. Listen to this, verse 15. <clears throat> Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Enmity means the division, right? The, if you're in enmity with me, you and I are enemies, man. We stand against each other. The division. Now, this is talking about the division of our sin nature, what we're born into, our natural tendency to be, to be rebellious. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And then as we happen, so we're born into sin, we're born in separation of God because of our disobedience, then we live in sin. So we add to it because we break the laws as we live. For to make in himself of twain one new man, making peace, making peace with God. Verse, 13, verse 16, that he might reconcile both our natural sin nature and our choice to choose to sin unto God in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. 
destroying the barrier. Dude, I don't know if y'all, that, that, if that doesn't excite you, there's something seriously wrong with your brain. Just saying. I'm telling you, I mean, God is so good, man. We're so undeserving. We're so undeserving. How many of us look at our life and go, you know what, man, I'm worthy of die for. If you truly understand who you are and you're really honest and you look within your own heart, the things we've thought, the things we've said, the things we've done, the acts, all these things. Guys, we realize the fact that we're not worthy of God, yet he loves us in spite of it. A horrible price had to be paid, and incredibly, God saw the results as worth it. He looked at us in our broken, lost condition, in our rebellious condition, and said, yeah, that's worth it. That's worth it. Listen to this. Hebrews 12.2 says this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look at the next part. Who for the joy, the joy, what kind of joy? That was set before him endured the cross. So the joy that was set before him was to be tortured, to be disrespected, to be beaten, to be murdered. Never fight back. Just suffer. Just die. That's the joy that's set before him. But what's the purpose? Despising the shame. He says, look, it's not something he wanted. And it's set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him, man. It was a a purpose to it because God knew. See, God knew he saw us and he loved us. And that's the thing that's so amazing about the fact is as God sees us, he says it's worth it because guess what? Through this death, you can be redeemed unto God. (laughs) The creature can be then reconnected with its creator. The child of God can be right back in the arms of their loving father. It's about redeeming us. The redemption that's pictured in the silver, that's in the base of the tabernacle. As you look at these columns, guys, it's not just a, just a material. It's not just a lump of silver. And then we see, now that all this is awesome. But guess what? That's only for us. It's for the age of grace. For the Israelites, guess what? They're going to have the veil. It's going to be fully intact. They're going to set the Ark of the Covenant behind it. And for thousands of years, this is the way it's going to be. Exodus 26, 34 said this, And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place that sits in the veil. So, but then we have another doorway. Our first doorway is the veil. The second doorway is this one. So the veil, first of all, understand the veil was all about developing intimacy, right? That's about closeness. That's about fellowship with the God. That's about, about this relationship that's intimate and close. Now, as the second door, we look at this in chapter, in verse number 37 and 38. And he made an hanging for the tabernacle door of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen and needlework, the same design. And the five pillars of it, with their hooks, and he overlaid their chapters. Chapters is a top cap. And their fillets, that's the hooks, with gold, but their five sockets were of brass. So we see five ornate pillars here with a drapery that's hanging very similar to the other one, creating the eastern side of the tabernacle. Now, as we talked about before, the east is reason why it's significant that it's the east, because God always moves in the Bible. He always moves from the east to the west. So what this teaches us, if I'm going to come to God I'm going to go the way of God, right? Since God moves east to west, now I'm going to have to move east to west. If I'm going to enter that temple, I'm going to go from the east to the west. And what's significant about that is the fact that you and I, because we know it's in Isaiah, Isaiah 56, uh, 56 or 53, 6, we studied, and it says there, that it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have gone our, our own way. So it says here, in order to go to God, you're going to have to go his way. You're going to go east to west. And we're like, ah, you know, kind of like do things my way. I got my own system. 
Can I just come to God the way I want to? Can I come through the back? No. Can you go through the side? No. Can I go from the north to south? Nope, nope, nope. It's the east only. So in order to come to God, guess what? We've got to go his way. It's a matter of trusting him and following his lead. And we look at this door. And what's significant, now if you, if you caught it or not, we're going to jump back to that verse. There's something significant about these columns that's very different about the other than the others. Exodus 36, 38, it said this, And the five pillars of it with their hooks, and he overlaid it with the chapters, and their fillets with gold, but their five sockets, what they stand in, were of brass. So everything's been silver up till now. Every socket that we've seen, every single one is silver. But these are different. These are brass. Why? Why? Now, as we've looked at the different areas, right? The sockets of silver. Silver represents redemption. Then gold represents deity. But brass represents something different. It represents judgment. Judgment. So in the holy place, in the most holy place, everywhere in there that represents God, where you're in holiness, silver Redemption is how you come in contact with the world. That's the result because of the redemption of God and the holiness of God. The gold is the deity of God. But now, outside of the tabernacle, we're no longer in the redemption territory. We're no longer in holiness. And we have this holy structure, but it's now coming in contact. But where it touches the earth now? Judgment. Because unholiness always results in judgment. So as we look at this, understand, God is going to judge all of humanity. Everybody. Not because God's mean. He just gets his jollies by going, yeah, I'm going to come down there and lightning bolt some folks and smash some things and blow up some stuff and bring some hurricanes. It's not the way it works. Understand, God is, in fact, is a judge, but he's a very, very good judge. He is an honest judge. He's a, a God of justice. And what's interesting about this is it's the exact opposite. People think that it's, he does it because of anger, but it's not anger. It's love. What motivate God's, motivates God's judgment or justice and judgment is love. And we think about that. We go, why? Because understand, love is God's character. It's who he is. 1 John 4, 8 says this, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So if God is love, God is perfect love, in fact. So if God is perfect love, guess what? At the same time, God is also perfect hate. And people, God hate? What? Understand this. God hates sin. Sin is contradictory to him. It's an exact opposition to him. It's an enmity of him. Romans, or Proverbs 8.13 says this. For the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy in the evil way, and the forward mouth do I hate. God says, I hate it. Look at the cross. You want to understand how much God hates sin? Consider the cross. When Jesus bore the sins of the world in his body, his loving son who had always had contact with, who had always been in complete perfect fellowship, in that moment when Jesus bore the sins of the world, what did God do? He had to turn his back on his own son. Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in his humanity, he hangs there in suffering and in pain and alone. Because God said, you know what? I hate sin so much that I can't even look at my son. I gotta let him suffer by himself. He hates sin, man. He hates it. Psalm 11.5 says this, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. He hates it. He hates it. 
And because of that, judgment will be coming. And what happens is if we take and we relate it to because we think about judgment, we go, ah, you know what? I think about a judge. I don't know about you guys. I always think about a courtroom, right? You think about the bench and the judge with the gavel and all that stuff. We're in the robe, right? So we think about that. Now, I want you to consider if we put it in that realm and we think about this and we consider the fact that let's say there's a criminal. Now, this criminal is fully aware of the law. They know exactly what's right and what's wrong. They purposely and willfully break the law. Now, they do this knowing the punishment even. They understand there's a punishment attached to it, and they still continue. Then they're caught red-handed. There's no doubt about it. They're absolutely guilty, no doubt about it. They bring them into the judge, and the judge says, you know what? I'm feeling generous today. Tell you what. Let's just say, be good from here on out, would you? You can leave. Good judge or bad judge? Bad judge, right? And some people go, well, it all depends. I mean, if it's like a, you know, wearing your seatbelt, it's not that big a deal. But imagine this. Let's, let's raise the stakes. What if this person had murdered your mom and dad? Cold blood. And he said, yeah, I'm feeling generous. You can leave. That's a bad judge. That's a bad judge. The thing is, God is a good judge. Now, he is a good judge. And the fact is, justice will be done. All of humanity, whether or not someone's ever set in foot in church in their entire life or has ever heard the Bible, guess what? They know what's right and wrong. You can go to any part of this world and people know that lying is wrong. They know that cheating is wrong. They know that stealing is wrong. They know that killing is wrong. It's written on their heart. They're born with it. That's written on their heart. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15 says this. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law... Do by nature the things contained in the law. He says, when they follow the law and not even realize it, he says, these having not the law and are a law unto themselves. They don't know the law that Moses wrote, but they know it in their hearts. They respond to it. And he says, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. Look, in their own culture, they don't know God, but guess what? They're excusing and accusing one another based upon a law they don't even know is about. Because it's written on their heart, they respond to right and wrong. So you and I, guess what? As we stand outside the tabernacle, as we stand here, we look down at those, 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 those sockets of judgment. There's something there. Hey, guess what? Those sockets, as I look at them, that's telling me, you know what? Guess what? There is hell to bay. There is a day of judgment. Now, if we honestly look at our lives, the way we've lived, the choices we've made, the people we've hurt, the thoughts that have run through our mind. The Bible says to have hate in your heart is the same as murder, as far as God's concerned. So how many of us would be murderers? Everybody. We've had these thoughts. We've done these things. We've stood contrary to God. We know what we should do, yet we choose to do it our way. We want things on our terms. Romans 3.20 says this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We know what is wrong. We know we have sinned. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody. Nobody is perfect. The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. And the reason why God adds that no, not one, because you know there's someone going, my grandma was a perfect saint. She was just amazing. You wouldn't believe her. She never just never told a lie. She was the best person in the world. I'm like, guess what? And God, Paul says, ah, no, not one. Just so you know, your grandma was a sinner too. Everybody's in the same boat. So we know this to be a fact. And when we consider this, the fact of all the things that we've done, understand the fact that God, when he saw us, because God is love. And see, if, if, if it was a human judge, 
we'd be in trouble. But because God's not a human judge, he's not like any judge on earth. And because God is love, the thing that motivates him is love. It's his care for humanity. So when he saw us facing judgment, facing damnation, facing destruction, he responded in love. The solution was, they, you know, he could, because you and I, we go, look, they've made their bed. They've, they've made their choice. Let them live with the consequences. But that's not God. God says, you know what? And not only have they made their bed, not only have they not only facing the consequences, but they're continuing to do these things. And even while they're doing them, because I love them, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a way. Motivated by love. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We hear that verse all the time. And it goes in one ear and goes out the other. We see it in a football team or in the end zone. John 3.16, John 3.16, John 3.16. Listen to what that says. For God so loved the world. He saw the world for what it was. Wicked, despicable, disobedient, rebellious. He saw it for what it was. He saw us for who we were. And yet, looking at us with those eyes, you and I look at somebody who's disobedient and a horrible criminal, and we go, you know what? You deserve to burn. That's our attitude. And God says, you know what? I created them for a relationship with me. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do everything I possibly can to give them a chance. Somehow, some way. I won't force them, and I can't force them. But you know what? I will open the door for them. I will reach out to them in love. John 17 says this. John 3, 17. says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why He came, but that the world through Him might be saved. What God did by coming to the earth in the form of Jesus Christ was to substitute himself for us. He put himself on the very cross that you and I should bear. He bore the sins that you and I should be guilty for. The hatred of God that you and I face and deserve to face. He said, you know what I'll do? I'll take the hatred on me. I didn't do anything wrong. It's as if the judge, it's as if the judge who was up there sitting on the bench and you're standing there guilty and before, just before passing sentence, he steps down and he walks to you and you're there chained up, ready to go because you know you're guilty. And he says, you know what? I'll take those. You can put them on me. The judge slips off his robe, drops it on the floor, puts the chains on himself. And they lead him away. And he says, you can go. You're free. The price has to be paid. Sin will be punished. It will be paid. But the fact is, God says, you know what? I love you so much that I will step in and take your punishment. So since we understand that punishment is going to come and judgment is going to come, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to pay it? If we pay it, there's only one or two choices for this life afterwards. There's heaven and there's hell. Receive Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior. Let Him pay the price for you. Accept Him by faith and love. Heaven is your home. Deny Him. Take the responsibility for your own sin. Straight to hell. And there's no get out of hell free card. That's not what today's about. Today's about assessing ourselves. That God offers us a way out. It comes down to this. When we face God's judgment, four things we have to understand. First of all, 
recognize our guilt before God. This isn't about feeling guilty or feeling bad. I feel like, you know, I wish I hadn't have done that. I'm sorry I hurt this person. Sorry, but it's, a, it's, a, it's accountability to God. We've sinned against God. And he created us for a love relationship with us. Here he is reaching out to us in love. And we spit in his face and we slap him away because we choose to do things our way. So we recognize our guilt before God. Then understand that there's an inescapable punishment for sin. Everybody will have a last breath. If it's by way of the rapture, you're going to, oh, hey, that was exciting. <laughs> or if it's by way of death. And you know what? God knows our last breath. And every, the amazing thing is God reaches out to people. I've seen people receive Christ on their deathbed in their last few seconds of life. Choose the Savior. Next, we recognize the incredible gift of love, understanding that without that, there's no hope. And then lastly, we accept the gift by faith and become a child of God. Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever, whosoever, who in the whole wide world, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be saved, not could be saved. It is a promise. So the first door pictured, right? It's the veil into that sanctified, loving, holy relationship with God that is sweet and intense and fulfilling, man. Every believer has access to that. Problem is, so many of us are so caught up in the world that we lose sight of that. And here we are, born-again believers, and we talk about the fact, you know what, I just don't feel close to the Lord. You know, I just don't feel like praying. Guys, We've been given access that no one ever in history was ever given, and yet we, de- we deny it or we abuse it. God, you know what? I'd really like a new car. Yeah, I prayed yesterday about a new car. That's all I prayed about. We're selfish. We treat God like a genie, like we're going to rub a lamp, and he's going to give us what we want. So then there's, here we are. Before we get to there, to the veil, we first have to get through the door. You've got to get into the holy place. And it's here, right, where we recognize the judgment of God. It's here where we stand at the door and we look at it. And we either enter by faith or we turn our back and walk away. It's a choice. Understand, God will not control us. He will set doors before you and you choose to walk through them. He has opened the door. He tore the veil clean in two. He has made a way that we can boldly come before the throne. We can walk right to the Father. The whole thing is, today, it's where you're standing. You're at the door. You're either standing outside of the veil inside the temple as a child of God, or you are a lost person looking at the judgment, seeing it, recognizing it. Understand that you're going to face it, but it's a door. It's a door. Which one will you choose? Will you go in or will you walk away? Jesus said this in John 10, 7, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door. 1 John 4, 10 says this, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. People go, oh, I love God, I love God. We wouldn't love God if he hadn't loved us first. And sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. So, Christian, today, are you standing as a pillar, right? Holding up the banner of Christ. 
individual responsibility and collectively. We hold it up and that's the thing that keeps us. That's why we're here, guys. You're not here for any other purpose. It's not about being happy. It's not about sustaining or it's not about developing a reputation or doing anything that's not about us. It's all about the banner, holding it up. And then maybe you're a Christian and you say, you know what, but today, I'm not holding the banner very high. I may have it in my hand, but I'm kind of afraid to lift it right now because I'm afraid I might face some, some retribution. I'm afraid that if I stand for God, I might have to face some stuff. The Bible says that all that shall live godly will suffer persecution. Guys, this world's not going to get better. I'm just going to have to break to you. It isn't going to get better. The Bible says it's going to wax worse and worse. The whole point is we're only accountable not for what the world does, not what our country does, not what our government does, not for what anybody else does. We're accountable for ourselves. And that individual responsibility is hold the banner. And there are people that hold the banner high, and they get their head lopped off. All over this world, people are martyred every single day. And that may be a coming day for us. I don't know. But our responsibility is to do that. Because ultimately, when we stand before God, it won't be what people thought of us here on earth. It'll be what God thought of us. And he said, did you do what I asked you to do? And I gave you access through the veil. I tore it clean in half. And you stood outside the whole time. You didn't come to me in prayer. You didn't go to my word. You didn't give me your heart. You lived for yourself. You filled yourself with the things of this world. You were so caught up in corruption. You were filthy with this world. Understand this tabernacle is in the wilderness, guys. It's in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness. We're all in the wilderness. The point is, will you go to God in the wilderness or will you live in the wilderness? If you're going to be in this world, man, you're going to eat up with all the garbage that it will bring. It will never fulfill you. It will use you up and it will spit you out. And the more you try to fill yourself with the things of this world, the emptier you become. And you try harder and harder and harder and harder. And it's more drugs, it's more sex, it's more money, it's more success, it's more whatever. More, you know, all these people that are so successful that are so miserable, they're caught up in all this stuff of the world. Because what you find is God created you with a God-shaped void in your heart. And until you put Him in there, nothing will fill that hole. Nothing. And the more you put in there, the bigger the hole gets. Because when it's money, money, that's what I need. If I just had enough money, then I would finally have peace and I would finally be happy. And then you get a whole lot of money and you realize that wasn't it. When I get a little bit more desperate. When that's a relationship. I just need a relationship with somebody who really loves me. I need to be someone who honor me and love me. That's what I need. If I can just get that relationship, or maybe more relationships than that. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's likes on Facebook. Maybe if I had 1,000 likes, man, I'd be happy. No, 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 10,000 likes. No, 10 million likes. Guess what? It's never going to be enough. That's right. Because you're born for God. Yes. And it's not until you put him in there, man, Amen. that it won't just be a dying void, a black hole that sucks us dry, destroys us. So as Christians, we have a chance to have an intimate walk with God. But if you're not a Christian, you say, look, I don't know. And I don't know if you're online or wherever you are, who this message is for, I don't know. But you know what? Maybe you're fed up with the world. Maybe you're tired being broken. This world is slammed full of people that are broken, shattered, wrecked, hurting, miserable. And they've tried, they've tried everything out there. And you know what? The suicide rate right now is highest it's been in decades. Because people look at the Facebook world of all these other people that profess themselves to have this wonderful, marvelous everything. What's amazing, guys, I have known people, because I know what's going on in their life, that are this close to divorce 
Their marriage is an absolute wreck. And if you went on Facebook, it looks like they are the model couple for the world. Posting a picture the day after talking to me about the fact that their marriage is coming to an end, the very next day, a picture of them. And everybody looks at that and goes, man, I wish my life was like theirs. Guys, if it was heartbook and the real deal was laid out, people are like, dang, man, I'm glad that ain't me. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. So this world is broken. And if that's the world you're caught up in, whoever you are, wherever you are, understand it doesn't have to be. Because you know what? If you really listen, you can hear God calling you. You can hear him. Jesus says, no man cometh to the Father, cometh to me, but the Father draw him. So what does the Holy Spirit do? It calls our hearts. It listens to our brokenness. It responds to us in love. And instead of judgment, which is coming, by the way, but instead of judgment for now, we're in an age of grace. And the grace of God says, I love you right where you are. I love you, no matter what you've done. No matter how many people you've hurt. No matter what you've thought or done, I love you. And it's that grace that he extends the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It's just a matter of faith. So as we stand outside the doorways of God, you can walk in. Not because you make a decision to just be a Christian, but because by faith you receive the gift and understand the doorways to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, for today, for helping, helping me to get out of the way. You know my heart, Lord. I said these messages would speak to hearts, God. They would make changes in this world for your glory. And with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you're a Christian today and you say, you know what? I know I'm not where I need to be. I know I'm not holding the banner high. I'm not representing the Lord. I'm representing myself. Change it today, guys, please, for his glory. We're not promised tomorrow. If you're standing outside the veil that you have access to walk right in because you don't pray, because you're not reading, because you're not giving yourself to him, surrender your will to God and experience the intimacy that's available. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, I don't, I don't know God. I know about him. Guys, 19 years ago, someone asked me a question. They asked me if I were to die today, if I knew I'd go to heaven. And having never been raised in church my entire life, never being in service, never reading a Bible, I said, I do not know. They cared enough because of love to share with me the truth that Jesus loved me. And that moment, 19 years ago, August 11th, 2001, I fell on my knees a broken man, and stood up redeemed. And you have that opportunity today, whether you're online, whether you're in here, wherever it is, to experience the exact same thing. He loves you right where you are. And as he calls to your heart, all he's asking is for you to respond. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you realize your lost condition, you know the, the judgments that you will one day face, and you understand that God loves you right where you are. If you want to receive that gift, 
He's reaching out to you right now. I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead you in prayer. But understand, there is no magic prayer. It is not the words that will do anything for you. It is not a ceremony. It is not me. It's you and God. He is the key. He is right now ready, willing, and able, and he's waiting on your heart to be opened and by faith for you to call out to him. So as I bow, as we bow our heads and as we keep our eyes closed, as I'm going to pray out loud, and I'm going to ask you, if you're online and you want to pray out loud, by all means. But if you're here and you just want to pray in your heart and mind, no one needs to hear it. It's between you and God. But it's a matter of you surrendering to him. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me in your heart and mind if you want to receive Christ as your Savior. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm so very sorry for my sin. I understand that it's kept me separated from you all of my life. I hear your call and by faith, I'm responding. I ask you right now in the best way I know how to come into my heart to save my soul and to give me a home in heaven. Lord, I understand who you are, and I turn from who I was that I might carry the name Christian, a Christ-like. Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me when I didn't deserve it. I will see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.